Good morning, church. All right, we're going to get to spend time in God's Word. We're going to walk through what Malik just read, and I'm excited to bring this message today in the book of Acts because we've made it to chapter 12. Who's excited? All right. Have you ever had God answer your prayer and you didn't actually believe that he did it? Anyone? Okay. Now, often we'll pray, God will intervene, and we'll attempt to either explain it away as a coincidence or actually forget that we asked for the prayer that happened in the first place. Anyone? Yeah. This is me pretty constantly. This might have to happen more to us than we realize because generally we don't take a tally. We don't write down all of our prayers that we've prayed to the Lord, but I know the desires of my heart. I know when I wake up, there are certain things that I want to have happen, and sometimes, generally, I pray for them. Now, I know I desperately want to see specific things take place. My children love the Lord, my wife and I to celebrate, I don't know, 100 years of marriage? No, that seems too long. But there are certain things that I want to see happen, and really what I want to have happen is I want to get in line with God's will. And when I am, those prayers are answered, usually in a timing that I don't expect, or let's be honest, in a timing I don't really prefer. Today we're going to read a pretty polarizing event in history of the church that probably isn't always seen as a very big deal but it's actually one of the biggest deals when it comes to the movement of the gospel in this general area and for us hearing the gospel today. And the way God has and still does use persecution to glorify his name. So Acts 12, verse 1, here's what it says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, when we read the passages, often I want to point out that sometimes there's a hero, and let me, let me cheat a little. The hero is always Jesus, for the record. But there's also sometimes some villains, and unfortunately, sometimes when we read passages, we're the villain. Today, it's Herod. And in some ways, we might identify a little with Herod, but more on that next week. Now, it's probably not the same Herod that you're thinking about. Because there's multiple Herods in the Bible. There's multiple Marys in the Bible. There's multiple James and Simons and things like this. And we know that in 33 AD, Jesus stood before Herod and was ridiculed before he even got to him, spit on, made fun of, all of these things. And then that Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate to be condemned. This Herod that we're studying about in Acts chapter 12 is actually the brother to Herod from Jesus' trial. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. Does anyone get that reference? Yes! It's Bob Newhart for those of you who have no idea. Now, this Herod, known as Herod Agrippa, is actually the father of the Herod that Paul will stand before and testify to in Acts chapter 26. I don't have anything that will point out all the specifics, but you can get your own study Bible and figure it out. Now, we know this Herod as Herod Agrippa, or, and the one that we study in Acts 26 is Herod Agrippa II. Herod was a little similar to perhaps what we would use as, so the word Herod is like a title, and we'd use similar things like president or judge or doctor, a title of someone who did something. This Herod Agrippa is the grandson to Herod the Great and is the ruling king of Judea and one who could rule and do what he wanted in Jerusalem where most of the apostles still resided. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. 
Now, I think, personally, Herod's an evil dictator and a politician. We'll learn a little bit more next week about how he wasn't the worst of the Herods. But he wanted to stop the movement known as Christianity, primarily, in my opinion, for political reasons. And so he put James, the brother of John, to death by the sword, Luke writes. James and John, just so we get clear on which James this is, were known as the sons of thunder and had been through a lot with Jesus. We read the Gospels, we read the book of John, and what we see here is that the Christian movement had been picking up steam in the book of Acts, and yet persecution was in the midst of all of it. For the first time since Stephen, you have a documented martyr, uh, martyring of a leader in the church, but this isn't just any leader. For the first time, an apostle, someone who had walked with Jesus prior to his death and then had seen Jesus alive after his death, and Jesus chose to go and preach to the Jews and the Gentiles about faith in Jesus, had now been killed for his faith. And definitely not the last time an apostle will be put to death for their relationship with Christ, but James is the first. In a way, it's kind of sad. All that this apostle gets, James, had regarding his death was one sentence, one verse, that Herod had killed him by the sword, and then as we continue to read, moves on to Peter. But James, the brother of John, they together were known as sons of thunder. They were young, they were loud, they were passionate young men. When we first read about them in the Gospels, the John that James was brothers with is the John that we know as the disciple of love, or the one who wrote the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In Mark chapter 3, 14 through 17, Mark documents about these brothers. It says that Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 that he appointed. We won't read all, but Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the one we're talking about, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonergus, which means sons of thunder. These brothers were probably the youngest of the apostles that Jesus chose. Just to be clear, I don't think a lot of us think about this, but when Jesus chose these men, they were like late teens, okay? They were young when they were called by Jesus. And if we estimate based on where we are now in this story and the timeline, they're probably in their early 30s now. The brothers tended to be a bit impatient. They wanted to call fire down on the villages that would not listen to their message. These were the same young men that came to Jesus with their mother and had a pretty arrogant request, if you remember. In Matthew 20, then the mother of the Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant the one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at, the le at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from the cup, but, you will not, or, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus stated or prophesied that these brothers also would drink from the same cup that Jesus would drink from, and this is a, an example of the reality that Jesus was going to be put to death, and these men would be put to death all for the test, testifying of the reality that Jesus is the Lord. They too would be killed for their obedience, 
and their love for God. And here is Herod, as we study in Acts 12, fulfilling this prophecy for James, murdering him with the sword because of his connection to Jesus. And this shook the early church. They were seeing the spread of the gospel. As we studied last week, the Lord's hand was upon the movement of the gospel message. and It was saving Jews and it was saving Gentiles. Verse 3, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, when Herod saw the approval, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Many speculate that Herod's capture and killing of James was a political flex to win over the Jews to his side. And seeing their reaction, he decided to go after the spokesperson of the apostles named Peter. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, which was seven days following the Passover meal, which was considered a holy time and not a time in which an execution should take place. Verse four, bless you. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, which really was the week of unleavened bread as well. Herod captured and put Peter in the most maximum security detail he possibly could at the time, four groups of four taking three-hour shifts throughout the night to guard and make sure that Peter did not escape which shows the severity of what could happen if Peter did escape, if for whatever reason, there shouldn't be any natural cause or excuse like the prisoner physically overtaking a guard. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now I'm gonna slow down because this is one of those verses that I just want us to unpack. You have this narrative about James, an apostle, being killed by Herod and Herod's capture of Peter now, and we know that a great escape will take place because we read ahead, but let's not move on too quickly from what is said here as Luke points out what is happening. The church in Judea, Jerusalem specifically, where the church began, was praying because Peter was in prison, because James had just been martyred. The church was afraid. They were worried that one of their own, Peter, would be killed. So what did they do? They went to the Lord in prayer. I know for me, while my prayer life at times is consistent, there are times it isn't. Anyone else? Okay, good. Good to know I'm not on an island. Now, my prayer life, possibly like yours, tends to increase when I recognize that my needs have increased. I think for the longest time, I believed that my prayer life only got more frequent when I had bigger needs in my life. The sickness of a friend, sickness of a family member, a death, a financial crisis, or a natural disaster. But what I have come to realize over time is that my prayer life isn't more necessary when my life is more interrupted. It's that circumstances like that just make my need that I've always had for the Lord more amplified. So when I go through something, the goal is not to then go, well, now I need to pray, but I ought to be someone who's consistently praying. Why? Because I'm in a relationship with God, and why wouldn't I want to talk to him? We don't need to pray more when life gets hard. We need to pray more without ceasing because we are in constant need of God's grace always. 
But the church body in Jerusalem, hearing about Peter's capture, begins to pray, begins to seek God's intervention in this specific circumstance. I think a question I've had for decades, and I guarantee some of you have the same question right now, and I hear this question from all levels of maturity, people that aren't in the church, people that have been in the church forever. They ask this question, why do we pray if God already knows what we want or need, right? If you're going, oh yeah, I feel that way, then you're not alone. And it tends to be a question though, let me be clear, that misunderstands what prayer is in the first place. Prayer is not about convincing God of your will. Prayer is getting in line with his will. Prayer is not about you trying to, well, if I try hard enough, if I pray enough, if I don't look at bad things where I shouldn't, if I don't say bad things, if I get really good, then God will answer my prayer. No, no, no. Prayer is not about changing God's mind. It's about getting in line with his will. As we say often, the word of God reveals the will of God written by the spirit of God. So there is no need praying if it's God's will for things that his word says that are his will. And I'm not going to give you the list of the things that God says are his will because that's your job to get into the word yourself. But as we pray, as we ask God for things that sometimes we just don't know if it's his will, as we pray, as we read his word, as we abide, as we spend time, we become more and more accustomed to God's will and his ways. The Christian life takes work. We're not saved by what we do, but once we come into contact with a relationship with God, like trying to train for a marathon, like trying to uh, get more physically fit, it takes effort not to justify you, but because you are justified, God starts to sanctify you as you put in effort for the right reasons. And this church was praying. I imagine this was some serious nonstop petitioning to God. There was a lot of Lord gods in the prayers. You know what I'm saying? A lot. And they prayed that he would provide escape for Peter from this imprisonment because of the assumption that Peter too would be found guilty and then executed. Verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, okay, like, I just want you to, like, try to put yourself in this place, watching the scene unfold. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. I love that Luke points out how protected from escape Peter was. He was bound with a guard on both sides of him while he slept. And there were guards at the exit to ensure that even if somehow he got past the two guards bound to him, he would have two more guards he would have to get past to leave the cell. Also note that Peter is about to be brought before Herod, who had just had James, another apostle like Peter, killed. And Peter was sleeping between these two guards. It kind of reminds me of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Peter understood that this life that he was living was the Lord's life for him to live for. And his death would be graduation to be with the Lord so he could rest in faith, knowing God's will was more important than his self-preservation. Verse 7, 
Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. Wake up, fool! I, no, I have no idea exactly how he did it. But he woke him up and he said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really actually happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So guess what? God intervenes. He sends an angel of the Lord to wake up Peter. The chains fall off of his wrist. You know how the chains fall off of his wrist? I have no idea. But the chains fall off of his wrists. And Peter, in a bit of a kind of just woke up days maybe, follows the angel of the Lord out of the prison. Peter, let me just note this, did nothing to leave the prison other than okay and just started to follow. Verse 10. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left them, or left him. Which all of this brings up a pretty interesting question. What were the guards doing that were chained to him and guarding the exit? Luke doesn't tell us. And isn't that annoying to some of us who kind of want to get to the, you know, bottom of this kind of stuff? Because, well, we really want to know the answer that other people don't know. And so all we have, because Luke hasn't said anything, is we have speculation. Were they asleep? Maybe. Were they in awe? Maybe. Was Peter given the invisibility cloak? Maybe. Probably not. The reality is how the guards were detained is not the point. The fact that God intervened and used this angel to help Peter escape is the point. And the angel left him once Peter was in the clear. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself. You guys probably know this feeling. You're sleepy and you kind of don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. He comes to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Peter, who was somewhat awoken this, by this, or in this daydream or this vision, he didn't know exactly what he was seeing, but then all of a sudden, the angel left, and Peter realized he was in the clear, and he makes mention that the circumstance, understandably so, had strengthened his faith. And he knew that God had miraculously saved him from what Herod and the political Jews wanted. Peter gave credit where credit was due. God was the one that obviously helped Peter escape an unescapable scenario. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, lots of Marys and Johns in the scriptures, also called Mark, okay, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. This is funny to me. Peter, after his realization of God's intervention, of his escape, went to John Mark's homes, or sorry, John Mark's mom's house, who was named Mary, where many of the church were gathered. They were praying for Peter while in prison. They were praying that God would rescue Peter. Rhoda, a maid 
came to the door after the knock and was so sure of Peter's voice, instead of opening the door to confirm what she had heard, she went to tell the others who were praying that Peter was at the door. I wonder if Luke enjoyed sharing this part of the story, knowing how silly people's responses are. Because look at what continues in 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Okay, so the Jews in this context definitely had a perspective of a guardian angel, and in a way, yeah, but no. You know who the guardian angel is? That's quotes for podcast. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing work. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. All right, real quick. Everyone, they're praying for this. God answers it. And what's their response? You're out of your mind. Is this our response, church? Do we really believe that God actually answers prayers? Do we really believe God even hears our prayers? Do we have a healthy spiritual diet, if you will, of praying by ourselves when no one else is around, no no one's going to give us credit, but we're on our own with the Lord, and do we pray with other believers? I, I think I've shared this before. One of my favorite things to do to make people feel awkward is to pray with them at Pete's, because it is holier than Starbucks, obviously. And stronger coffee. And I'll be talking with someone, and maybe they aren't someone who is necessarily a believer, but we start to have a conversation. It's not like we're talking about the Niners, and I'm like, can I pray for you? That's not how this works. You're a Seahawks fan? I need to pray. Um, no. But we'll, we'll be having a conversation, we'll be talking, and then I will just say, hey, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to at least hear how I will be praying for you in the future, and then I will pray for them, and they don't know what to do. They don't know where to put their hands. They don't, they don't know how to sit. They're like looking around. There's other people watching us. It's so fun for me. But the reality is when people get to hear how you pray for them, it's one of the most evangelistic things. Not because you're going, well, Lord, I pray that Malik would understand that the grace that was given to him by the death and resurrection and the blah, blah, blah. No, but just to be able to pray blessings upon this person is one of the most evangelistic things I think we can do. And honestly, when I'm with other believers and we're somewhere and having that opportunity to pray in public, I've had many people come over and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, skiing? (laughs) Because my spiritual gift is sarcasm. So I wanna be the person that when I pray, I acknowledge that God hears. I wanna be the person that when I pray, I acknowledge that God can answer but also knows what's best for me and what's best for his glory. Which tends to mean when I pray to God for something, he has three answers. He says yes, he says no, he says not yet. But whatever he decides, to him be the glory and praise forever, amen. Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. What's a, what's a motion? <laughs> And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Peter then speaking to those who were in attendance of the church and had been praying for his release, he then quieted down and told the story of how the Lord used an angel to free him from prison. 
Peter tells them to tell James. Well, obviously not the James who just died. Not the one that Herod killed. But, the bro- but not James' brother to John, but James, the half-brother to Jesus. Good job. And James, the one who wrote the book of James, had become a head elder in the church in Jerusalem. And the assumption is that the other apostles had gone into hiding because of James's murder and then Peter's capture. So he said, hey, go get this message to James, the brother of Jesus. Now, all of this is kind of telling a story that I want us to then have to think through. Because we're, we're, while we're doing the book of Acts, we're doing a narrative, I'm not spending all my time trying to explain to you how in this specific word is being used in this way so then you can feel more like a theologian. My hope for each and every one of us is that we would understand that as we come to his word, we get to have more knowledge of the Son of God and grace starts to make more sense. And so how we come to scripture matters. If I say that every week, I am not gonna apologize for that. Having tools like The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the death, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is our lens for how we read this book is a good tool. It makes all the difference in the world when we come to the scriptures because now this book is a story of redemption rather than a book you pick up when you're feeling down and just turn to any page you want for a spiritual pick-me-up. Now, because you understood my Bob Newhart reference, I'm going to assume you're going to understand this current story. So let's see what happens. When the preacher's car broke down on a country road, he walked to a nearby roadhouse to use the phone. After calling for a tow truck, he spotted his old friend Frank, who was drunk and shabbily dressed at the bar. What happened to you, Frank? asked the good reverend. You used to be rich. Frank told a sad tale of bad investments that had led to his downfall. Go home, the preacher said. Open your Bible at random. Stick your finger on the page, and there will be God's answer. That is not true, for the record. Sometime later, the preacher bumped into Frank, who was wearing a Gucci suit, nice, sporting a Rolex watch, and had just stepped out of a Mercedes. Frank, said the preacher, I'm so glad to see that things have really turned around for you. Yes, preacher, and I owe it all to you, said Frank. I opened my Bible, I put my finger down, and there on the page was the answer. Chapter 11. No. They don't know it. Chapter 11 means bankruptcy. That's adorable. That is the quietest I have ever heard this church. Yes. I was like, Mike, do you think, and we were both arguing, about it. I was like, I don't think they're going to get it, but it's going to be fun to share and have none of you get it. So now we're there. You ever notice that there are multiple Herods in the New Testament, that there are multiple James, multiple Judases, John, Simons, Marys? And let's be real, it can get seriously confusing if we're just reading the book without any help from scholars, study Bibles, commentaries, historical backgrounds, and even with one another together in the Word. But do let me say this, not all study Bibles are the same. Okay. This is honestly, and it's going to feel a bit like a commercial, but every YouTube video I watch, they have a commercial in it, so I'm going to do it. This is why I'm so excited for community groups we're in First Thessalonians. We're studying this beautiful book that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, but we're also offering ways that can help each and every single one of us engage in the text on our own and with others without just guessing at things. 
But having some boundaries of interpretation that will and do help us get so much more out of what the writers intended to communicate. Now, as I read this story, as we're reading this in Acts, I realize just how confusing and misleading the scriptures can be for people that are not tethered to any type of hermeneutical rules or interpretive guidelines. I don't mean to sound nerdy, but I am. And while we don't want to exalt the study of the scripture above the God of the word, the reality is that people have a very shallow or linear view of God if they do not study what this entire book is about within the context in which it was written. And yet for most of us, can we be real? This book's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, it's long. Most of my books are like a blog, right? This book is overwhelming. It's 66 different books within one book. It's 39 letters in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. There are 1,189 chapters in the entirety of the Bible, 929 in the Old Testament, 260 in the New Testament, which leads us to the fact that there are 31,102 verses in all of the scriptures with 23,145 in the Old Testament, 7,957 in the New Testament, and that's what we have for God speaking to his creation for the history of mankind, sin separation of us between God and him, the history, or between us and him, the history of his people, the coming of his son, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the establishing of his church through the spread of the gospel message and the future conclusion of God making a new heaven and a new earth for those who would find their identity in Jesus Christ. <sighs> this book is living. It's active, but it also can be overwhelming and confusing. But there is a helper the Holy Spirit, who resides in those who God has redeemed. And while he doesn't give you all the wisdom and knowledge all at once, nor is it something that can be obtained passively, growing in our knowledge of the Son and through his actual word written down over thousands of years is such a grace of God. And while we engage with his word, we learn more and more not to just pack away things in our minds so we can answer questions in quizzes, but to experience and to apply and to obey. And as we do, life change, life transformation, Christ-likeness, while slow and subtle, let's be real about this, begins to take shape in a believer's life. I love to hear my dear sister Barbara pray because that's decades of abiding. And that's what it sounds like to me. And it's not quick and it's not microwaved and it's, it's failing and then turning back to God. But as we do, we start to understand grace more and our relationship with Christ and his people and his church. We as a church will not very obviously have, if you know it or not, course corrected a bit as a church when it comes to what we're teaching and how we're trying to point everything to what we do. Especially over the past few years of this specific thing, we are unapologetic when it comes to we are fixated on the finished work of Jesus Christ in his great exchange, of him trading his life for sinners' lives, like ours, and being raised to life, which gives us access to God in eternity, aka the gospel, aka God's intervention, and rescue from the clutches of our sin nature. So church, 
we want to help each of us grow and mature. And as we do, the evidence of that is the word becomes more and more alive. Erin, my wife and I, were talking on Thursday, and she won't know this until she watches the video, so haha. But we were talking on Thursday, and she's been studying the book of Romans with Jenny. Jenny is one of our faithful children's ministry servants, who's also been a big part of the youth leadership, uh, youth ministry leadership team. And Erin and I, uh, or Erin and her, have been spending evenings studying the book of Romans. They've been studying it separate, and then when they come together, they talk about all that they've learned through their study and the conversations they've had. And honestly, let's be real, I think at least for me, Romans is my favorite letter in the Bible. It really is. Because it explains justification by faith, sanctification through grace-driven obedience, and God's ability to glorify himself through his church, both Jew and Gentile. And Aaron was telling me how excited she is every time she's been studying the letter of Romans before her time with Jenny when they get together, and then they get to discuss what they learn separately and help one another grow and understand more of the character of God. She pointed out that because we've been so focused on the gospel of grace over the past few years especially, that all of a sudden Romans make so much more sense to her. It's coming alive in ways that she's never experienced. And while Romans is a great letter within the Bible, every letter in the word of God has the ability to come alive in this way. If we put in the time, if we put in the effort, if we put in the care, and we want to get to know God better through his word. My wife was pumped. I'm pumped. Not just as a pastor, not just as her husband, but as a fellow believer, because it is so beautiful to see people really enjoying God's word. Let's conclude. Verse 18. In the morning... There was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Luke is now pointing out that the aftermath of what happened with Peter, once Peter had escaped Herod's capture and the guards' recollection of what had taken place was probably pretty fuzzy. And it probably sounded ridiculous to anyone who didn't believe in God and didn't believe that he's real, doesn't believe that he intervenes, doesn't believe that he can do the miraculous. Like, I don't know, raising Jesus from the dead comes to mind. Verse 19, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, Peter, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, we conclude today, I'm not going to invite the worship team up yet, but we conclude today in the middle of verse 19. Next week, we're going to see what Luke documents regarding the rest of Herod's life after the events that we studied today. But what happened here? Once Herod found out that Peter escaped, they searched high and low. And I have to assume that Herod was livid because of all the precautions that he had made, the plan that he had, and Peter still with the help and the will of the Lord without really any effort or plan or shrewdness of Peter escaped as he in what he thought was a daydream out of captivity. And now Herod, who would be embarrassed and made to look foolish politically because of the loss of Peter after examining the story that the guards who were entrusted to keep Peter there had failed, 
even if their story shared was one that they felt like they had no control over, Herod, in line with what he and many of his family members who were also Herods had done, had the guards ordered to be executed. This can bring up a lot of questions, can't it? All right, close your Bibles. I'm just kidding. This can bring a lot of questions about fairness. These guards were doing their jobs, and God intervened to rescue Peter. This was not the guards' fault. There was nothing they could do to stop God from rescuing Peter. And didn't God know that Herod would then have the guards found responsible for Peter's escape and have them executed? Of course he did. But here's the thing I want you to take away, if anything, is that God's will and man's sinfulness are at odds, and often sometimes God redeems by using people's sinfulness, their actions, and their responses that are not holy, that are not in line with God's will, and he uses them to make much of himself directly or indirectly. While the guard's death was terrible, and I think it's easy to say that it was unfair, it was showing just how evil and awful sinfulness in mankind can be. And it showed, as we will study next week, just how awful sin can be in a person with power, so much so that they can begin to consider themselves the sovereign Lord over everything. And so those guards being executed by Herod can still bring glory to God. James the Apostle, the first of the apostles to be martyred for his connection to Jesus, brought glory to God. Peter's escape from prison brought glory to God. Peter's eventual death on an upside-down Roman cross will bring glory to God. Let me tell you how I know all of this is true. The death of our Savior and our King Jesus, even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us so that we could have a relationship with God. His death on the cross brought glory to God. And it created a bridge between the chasm that sin had afforded each one of us who are sinful creatures. And because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can now have access to God through his finished work and the gift of faith in response. So please, church, I, I don't think I'm saying anything you don't already know. This world is broken. Don't forget that. This world is fractured by sin ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, and yet the second Adam restores our relationship back to God not through our work, but his finished work on our behalf. And so this life, while not fair, this life, while not easy, this life, impossible to get out alive without Jesus Christ as your Savior, our Lord, our King, and our salvation, but as the book of Acts will continue, God has commissioned and continues to use these apostles in their lives and their deaths to make much of him so that we one day could be included in God's family, gathered as his church to sing praises and give glory to him for eternity because he is worthy and glorious and beautiful because through ways that you and I don't even fully grasp in his grace, he has come to our rescue. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I don't want to read the Bible like it's some far-off story that doesn't apply. I don't want to read the Bible like you're not in this room hearing me teach. I don't want to read the Bible in a way that doesn't bring glory to you. 
But Lord, I, more importantly than if I teach well or if I am funny or anything like that, the most important thing is that the people that hear your word, me included, put into practice what we're learning because we love you. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us the faith to do that. We ask that we wouldn't allow this to go in one ear and go out the other, lest it hardens our heart, but that we would want to put into practice and serve you and know you better and that we grow in our knowledge of your Son and that we would grow and understand that even the breath that we take today is a grace from you. So, God, as we sing worship that I think a lot of times when we plan it, we might be thinking about a worship set that might connect with the audience, but Lord, you are the audience. And so God, I pray that as we sing praises to your name, we wouldn't forget how important it is to be able to cry out to our God and say, Lord, thank you. Because your word says that if we don't praise you, the rocks will cry out. And Lord, we want to cry out and say, praise you, King Jesus, who came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and you rescued us. Not because you sinned, but because you became sin, because I sinned so that I could be made right with you.